good to have you. We're going to be uh, starting a new series in the season of Lent. And as Andy mentioned, this is kind of the 40 days leading up to uh, the, the death and, and resurrection of Christ. And, and church historically has kind of put that on the calendar to kind of frame, reframe our hearts and our lives toward God, to, to reflect on our relationship with God in light of that and, and how are we doing in light of that. And uh, even they kick off Lent with Ash Wednesday where they put ashes on your head. Some traditions do that and, and some don't. And, but, but it's the idea of reminding ourselves that we're ash, that we're, uh, we're, we're mortal um, and, and we're going to die and our lives are short and how are our lives going to be lived in light of God. Um, and and so, uh, so really excited to begin kind of a new series of messages this morning. And, and, and I want to say this message, these messages were kind of birthed a, a lot of years ago in me. And, uh, and when I became a believer in Christ, one of the things that I noticed real quick was I was compelled by Jesus Christ. Um, and, and I was thankful that he died for my sins and I was thankful that he resurrected from the dead. And, and that, those were core teachings of the scripture and the faith and, and yes and amen to that. But as I looked at Jesus, as I read the gospels and I, I watched him live his life, I was absolutely confused, compelled enamored with this Christ. And I would say even our, our culture has been enamored with this Christ because we don't know what to do with him, right? I mean, the way he lives his life is like no other person ever. And, and partly because he is God and, and he was without sin, but he lived such a free life, right? He never seemed to coerce anybody, did he? He's just like, here's the kingdom of God. Here's how it goes. Take it or leave it. Right? He, he didn't have the sense of, I need to manipulate you, I need to, you know, because that's how I live my, my life. The way he, he loved people, the way he forgave his enemies, uh, I, I just was compelled. The way, you know, and as a man, like, I need a, I need a God that, that's kind of manly at the same time, like, probably like working on a car, maybe getting some dirt on his hands. And I saw that in Jesus, right? Flipping over tables in the temple, saying a hard word when he had to say a hard word. But I also saw a man who was gentle who loved women, who loved children, right? Who, 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 walking with his disciples, I mean, just, I mean, how many times Jesus could have just said, you know, in this quiet moment, it's like, I'm done with you guys, really? Are we doing this again? Patient, right? But there's something about Jesus that's so compelling. And, and, and so as I got a little bit older and I ended up found myself in seminary, God's sense of humor, um, we, we began to look at these creeds and confessions of, of the church. And, and I knew some of these before going to seminary, but we, we call these kind of ecumenical creeds. Most Christian churches believe in these creeds. There's, there's two, there's actually three, Apostles' Creed, I won't read that one, but Nicene Creed and Athanasius Creed. They, they, they came out a couple hundred years after the church um, in 200, 300, 400 AD because there was some false teaching going around the church and they wanted to unite the church. And one of the things they talked about was and one of the questions was, and one of the heresies was, was Jesus, yes, he was God, but was he also human at the same time? Was he fully God, fully man? How does this actually work? And one of our creeds, Nicene Creed, says this, for us and for our salvation, he came down from heaven, Jesus, he became incarnate by the Holy Spirit and the Virgin Mary and was made human. He was crucified for us under Pontius Pilate, he suffered and was buried, the third day he rose again. Like, Okay, that, that's helpful. He, he was human, right? We, we know he came, he took on the flesh. He was fully God, fully man. He ate and drank like you and I, but he was without sin, right? He participated, had a job. He worked at, he was a carpenter. He, he did the kind of things that we would do. He wasn't an angel who floated down from heaven. He was born like we were born. But that's all it says. <laughs> Doesn't give us much else, right? Um, the Athanasius Creed. 
He is God from the essence of the Father, begotten before time, and he is human from the essence of his mother, born in time, completely God, completely human, with a rational soul and human flesh, equal to the Father as regards divinity, less than the Father as regards humanity. Although he is God and human, yet Christ is not two, but one. He is one, however, not by his divinity being turned into flesh, but by God's taking humanity to himself. And so, so we have these, these creeds and these confessions that talk about the humanity of Jesus. But what I began to realize as I kind of went through seminary and kind of went through life, I just have this kind of stinging question constantly in my mind is that we talk a lot about the death and resurrection of Christ, which we should. Yes and amen, of course. We just sang about it. But we don't talk enough about the humanity of Jesus and what it teaches us about how to live our own lives. The, the question of discipleship. Because what we'll get is if it's just about the death and resurrection of Christ, then it is say a prayer, go to heaven. That's all the Christian life is. But it's not take up your cross and follow me. Take up your cross and become like Jesus, who is conforming you into the image of Christ. We get a transactional faith that simply says, I said a prayer when I was eight, but I don't need to become like him. I don't need to die to myself. I don't need to cling, with, cling to him and become more made into his image. Those things are optional. And so for the next few weeks, we're going to look at, together, the humanity of Jesus, the life of of Jesus and what we can learn from his life and how he lived his life on the earth because there's a lot that it can teach us. His life was not a throwaway. Like we don't read the gospels and go, well, it's all going to the cross. It's all going to the resurrection. Who cares how he lived? He's saying, hey, if you were a perfect human, if you came into humanity and you were perfect in every way, here's how your life would begin to take shape. You would forgive your enemies. You would have a close relationship with God of heaven and earth. You would love your neighbors as your self, right? You would proclaim the kingdom of God. All these kinds of, of things Jesus teaches us from his, his life. And so, so I hope in the next few weeks we can, can look at Jesus' life in different places in the Gospels and then we can see the practices and the things that Jesus did and we can apply those same things into our lives because that's what he's showing us. That's what the, the Gospel writers and the Scriptures are showing us. So, a couple things here. Jo um, Joe, excuse me, uh, mentioned Hebrews chapter 4. And so in Hebrews chapter 4, we, we read these, these texts, and this is why we're talking about the humanity of Jesus before we get into our main text. But, but a couple places here, Hebrews chapter 4, notice in, in uh, I should say, chapter 5, notice in verse 8, although he was a son, he learned obedience through what he suffered. That we think of Jesus as, well, he's God, right? He doesn't have to learn anything. He just has everything implanted into him. But this text says something very different. That Jesus learned obedience. He suffered. He was tested. He had to grow in the knowledge of God. Now, granted, now we have to, it gets, it's, there's some mystery here, okay? So, so we, we got to live with the paradox and the tension. Still fully God, still fully man. But just like you and I, just like disciples of Jesus, there's things we have to learn to follow him, right? Through our lives. That he was nurtured in the scriptures. He, he, was, he had a father who taught him a craft. He, 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 he experienced temptations like we do. He experienced loss like we do. He, he had relational difficulties like we do. He had to learn obedience. We, we see another text in 1 Peter uh, chapter 2, which I think is, is a great text. Um, was this Josh, the text you preached from? I don't remember now. 1 Peter chapter 2. Thank you. 
21. For this, to this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example, so that you might follow in his steps. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. He says, Peter says, hey, in the midst of persecution, in the midst of suffering, when people say, hey, it's kind of dumb to be a Christian, why would you want to do that? In 1 Peter, persecuted people, he says, follow in the steps of Jesus. Well, how did Jesus deal with suffering? He entrusted himself to the Father. He didn't revile. He didn't lash out. He prayed for his enemies, right? We learn that from his life. So don't, don't get nervous, like, like well, is this just an example? You know, Jesus is our example. No, he's our Savior, he's our Redeemer. He's the creator of the universe. But all over the scriptures, it's saying, look to Jesus and how he lived his life, and he will give you clues and insights in how you're to live your life the same way. And I get that mainly because of Romans chapter 8, 29. We could go to other texts. But anytime I can mention Romans 8 is a good Sunday. Notice how Paul says in Romans chapter 8, verse 29, For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be, what? Conformed to the image of his Son, in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. So, so Paul says, the reason for your salvation, the reason which God has called you and brought you to himself, has given you life, forgiven you of your sins, is what? So that you would be conformed into the image and likeness, transformed into the Son. You'd become more like Christ. It's not just saying a prayer when you're eight at your daddy or mommy's bed or coming forward and shaking the pastor's hand. It's being conformed into the image of Christ. And we learn what that is like and how that flushes itself out in the life of Christ. We see it demonstrated, right? Now, granted, there are things you're not going to do that Jesus did, like die on a cross. Thank you, Lord. Right? You're not going to redo that as some actually have taken that literally. Now, one day you will be resurrected from the dead, but, but, but that's not your role. And again, it's, it's 2018. It's going to look different than a first century culture, right? Maybe Jesus is calling you to heal lepers. I don't know many in Kansas City. But it's going to take on different shape in our lives and our personalities and our families and our jobs and our, right? So, so we don't want to be this kind of weird legalism, weird literalism that, well, Jesus did this, so we need to do this, right? That could actually get you thrown in jail if we actually take it literally in some of these things. But we see from Jesus' life how to live our lives. So let's go to Luke chapter 4 after my long introduction. And I want to start here this morning, Luke chapter 4, because it's going to give us a taste of what I call the word-centered disciple. The, the, the first place I want to begin this series, and the first place I, I think we all have to begin is to saturate and ground our lives in the Word of God, just how Jesus was. And a great place to see that demonstrated in how he did it is in Luke chapter 4, The Temptation of Jesus. It's, it's fairly familiar. Um, even if you haven't been around the scriptures of the church, you've you probably heard uh, this story some way, shape, or form. But, but Luke chapter 4, turn there, verse 1. The first uh, 13 verses, I'll read that. And Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, returned from the Jordan and was led by the Spirit in the wilderness for 40 days, being tempted by 
the devil. That's where we get Lent from. It's, it's kind of modeled after these 40 days that Jesus was being prepared for public ministry in the desert. So nothing weird. But he was, he was fasting. He was praying. He was hungry, right? Um, again, he, and he ate nothing during those days. And when they were, uh, they were ended, uh, he was hungry. Thank you, Luke. I think one of the funniest verses in the, in the Bible, right? Oh, really? Yeah, 40 days? I mean, I can't go like 40 minutes without eating. <laughs> and he was hungry. Yeah, okay. Thank you. I love that. The devil said to him, if you are the son of God, command this stone to become bread. And Jesus answered him, it is written, man shall not live by bread alone. And the devil took him up, showed him all the kingdoms of the world in a moment of time and said to him, to you, I will give all this authority and this glory for it has been delivered to me and I give to him to whom I will. If you then will worship me, it will be yours. And Jesus answered him, it is written, you shall worship the Lord your God and, and him only shall you serve. Verse 9, and he took him to Jerusalem and set him on the pinnacle of the temple. And he said to him, if you are the son of God, throw yourself down from here for it is written. He will command his angels concerning you to guard you. And on their hands, they will bear you up lest you strike your foot against a stone. And Jesus answered him, it is said, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test. And when the devil had ended every temptation, he departed from him until an opportune time. And one of those being as he gets closer to the cross. Now, kind of a strange text, like, okay, pastor, like you're going to talk about being kind of these word-centered disciples, having the, the word of God kind of be the foundation of our lives. Well, well, this is a beautiful text of understanding how to use the word of God when, God, when Satan is tempted. Here, here's Jesus. He's, he, he's being tempted. You, know, you see that in verse, verse 3. The devil said to him, you're the son of God. Command this stone to become bread. Right? Jesus fasting in the desert 40 days and 40 nights. He's hungry. He's thirsty, right? So what's the first temptation? Of course, saying he's pretty crafty. He's pretty smart. Hey, why don't you take these stones and turn them into bread? You're, you're hungry. I don't know about you, but those stones probably looked pretty good at that moment. Some scholars even say there might have been some stones in the first century that actually looked like loaves of bread that he pointed to. Right? He's at his lowest point. He, he, he's weak. He has to rely on God fully. So notice how Jesus responds. He says, it is written, man shall not live by bread alone. Now, we can read that as, as just a throwaway response, but what is he doing? He's quoting scripture. He, he's quoting Deuteronomy chapter 8. And if you want to flip there, you can. Uh, and we're going to look at Deuteronomy 8 and 6 because that's where he's quoting from. But Deuteronomy chapter 8, very interesting. Verse 2, Deuteronomy chapter 8, verse 2, And you shall remember the whole way that our Lord your God has led you these 40 years in the wilderness, that he might humble you, testing you to know what was in your heart, whether you would keep his commandments or not. And he humbled you and let you hunger and fed you with manna, which you did not know, nor did your fathers know, that he might make you know that man does not live by, here it is, bread alone, but man lives by every word that comes from the mouth of of the Lord. So, so there's something very remarkable and very astounding and very amazing that if we don't trust the scriptures, they're very much united and, and, and cut together. Jesus is quoting Deuteronomy chapter 8. And if you read Deuteronomy chapter 8, as I just did, what is he saying? That God sent his people into the wilderness for 40 years. Why? What did you say? To test them. To humble them. 
I, I love when Scripture tells you why they're doing what they're doing. Right? Because we le- read the Old Testament, it's like, I don't know why. They, why do they have to go to the desert? Because we know, um, actually, if you look at archaeological evidence, like they could have went straight to the promised land, and it wouldn't have taken, taken 40 years. It's actually not that long of a journey. So God's doing something. Why 40 years to test them, to humble them, to say, people, are, am I enough for you? Will you rely on me? Man can't live on bread alone. You need every word that comes from my mouth. In other words, you need to do what I say and trust me that I have all of your good intentions in mind. That I'm your God, you're my people, trust me, I have a good plan for you. I'm going to give you all the joy in the world and all the salvation in the world and you're going to be my people. Will you trust me? And here's Jesus. Interesting. 40 days in the desert. Not 40 years, but 40 days. I'm humbling you, Jesus. I'm testing you to see what's in your heart. Will you trust me? And Jesus says, a hearty yes and amen. Yes and amen. Man does not live on bread alone, but every word that comes from the mouth of Astounding. He's using the scriptures to respond to the temptations of Satan. Satan says, hey, Jesus, do a little miracle for me. I know you can. No. I'm hungry, yes, but I will rely on God. I will trust God in this moment. So we see another temptation here. And and Jesus is in verse 5. You go back to, to Luke. We see that second temptation. And the devil took him up and showed him all the kingdoms of the world in a moment of time and said to him, to you I will give all this authority and their glory for it has been delivered to me and I gave it to whom I will. Which is very interesting because Satan knows who Jesus is and Jesus is already king of all things and has all cultures and anyway, it doesn't matter. But if you then will worship me, it will all be yours. And Jesus answered him, it is written, you shall worship the Lord your God, and him only shall you serve. Satan says, hey, you want all glory, all power? It's right here for the taking, Jesus. Just worship me. He says, man doesn't, man's created to worship God and worship God alone. You shall worship and serve God. He's quoting Deuteronomy 6, 45, and 13 what we call the Shema. Jewish people for thousands of years would recite the Shema, the Deuteronomy chapter 6, the same verses that Jesus quotes when he's he's cornered by the religious leaders in Matthew 22. He says, what is the greatest commandment? He says, love the Lord your God with all your heart. Love your neighbor as yourself. That's based on Deuteronomy 6 and also Leviticus uh, 19. This would have been in their hearts and in their their minds if you were a good Jewish kid growing up in a Jewish home. I'm going to love God every day. I'm going to recite the Shema. I'm going to say, Lord, you are my everything. I'm going to love you with all my heart, mind, soul, and strength. I'm going to love my neighbor as herself. I'm reminding myself every single day that I belong to you. And here's Jesus being tempted of worship that isn't of the true and living God. And he quotes Deuteronomy 6, the Lord your God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, your mind, your soul. If you go to verse 11, um, verse, uh, excuse me, 13, it is the Lord your God you shall fear. Him you shall serve, and by his name you shall swear. That it's an audience of, of one. That the temptation for all of us 
is to worship self or worship something other than God, to believe that that's going to give us the joy that we long for, that's going to give us the, the hope that we long for, the salvation that we, we long for. And he says, and he has the scripture so, and so immersed in his heart and his mind and his soul. And when that moment comes, when he is absolutely exhausted and hungry and tired, he says, it's very tempting, but no way. No way. Do you find this very similar to the Garden of Eden? Well, it is. Very much so. Here's Adam and Eve in the garden, our first parents. The crafty little serpent comes along. You can be like God. You can have the knowledge of God. You don't need God. You can live your life apart from God, right? Isn't that what Satan's doing right here to Jesus? Isn't it interesting that the scriptures call Jesus the second Adam? There's the first Adam who failed miserably and said, yeah, sure, why not? That God doesn't know what he's talking about. I can live my life on my own. I can live by my own rules, my own commands, and life's going to go great. I'm going to be the first human in human history to live apart from God and have a great life. And it goes horribly wrong for Adam and Eve, doesn't it? But here comes the second Adam and says, Adam, I got you. You, you failed in every way. Here comes the second Adam, Jesus Christ, Israel, failed in every way. They did not trust God in the desert, did they? They became a stiff-necked people and said, I'm going to do whatever I want to do. And here comes the second Adam and saying, everything that you could not do, I am doing for you right here in the desert. Take notice. I will worship no other God but God alone, the God of Jacob, the God of Isaac, the God of Abraham. Very much like the garden, isn't it? And very much like the temptations you and I face every day. This is no different. This isn't like a, like a well, we're really going to get him. Like, nobody struggles with it. I mean, he's God, but we're going to give him some really big, like, daily reliance and dependence on God for everything. Like, that's a struggle for all of us. God, do a miracle, right? If you just do a miracle, I believe in you. If you just, just come through, what if he doesn't come through? Are we going to be okay? All the temptations every day to be something, to exalt ourselves, to think that, that life is about the Holy Trinity of me, myself, and I. That if I could just get that promotion, or if I could just have a certain wife or husband, or a certain group of friends, or a certain amount of money, then maybe life will be worth living. We're tempted by those things every single day, just like Jesus was. And again, we see him using the scriptures to ward off this temptation. And then the last little temptation, I shouldn't say little, but the last temptation in verse 9. And he took him to Jerusalem, set him on the pinnacle of the temple, and said, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down from here, for it is written, He will command his angels concerning you to guard you. And on their hands they will bear up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. And Jesus answered him, It is said, You shall not put the Lord your God to the test. And when the devil had ended every temptation, he departed from him until an opportune time. Jesus could have left off the temple and did a little trick for Satan. And the angels could have come and carried him. He totally could have done that. But he says, no, God is not a dolphin. That's my translation. Who's just going to leap through your ring whenever you say go. God will not be tested like that. God is God and we are not. But he doesn't always work in the ways that we want him 
to. But don't put your God to a test. He's not just a, a, a little sideshow doing little miracles. Or do, right? I mean, that was, that's what Jesus always got, got in trouble, right? He, he would do these incredible miracles, right? He would feed the 5,000, feed the, the 4,000, and he's a rock star, right? I mean, they're handing out T-shirts and mugs, and they're just like, check this Jesus out. Can you believe what, what he just did? And then he gets to this point, and he goes, hey, you need to take up your cross and follow me. You need to die to yourself. And all of a sudden, they're like, oh, okay. I got a thing, Jesus. Got to wash my hair tonight. Nowhere to be found. Because they like the miracle, Jesus. They like the do the trick, do the thing, Jesus. Do that thing where you heal the people, right? That's, that's amazing. But they didn't want to follow him. They didn't want to know him. They didn't want to enjoy him for all of their lives. And so when he said really hard things, they said, see you, see you later. So Satan comes with his arrows and tempts Jesus multiple times and says, hey, Worship me, worship something else, do a trick, right? And, and Jesus has the scripture so immersed in his heart and in his life that he's able to call on those things and say, no, I have a better promise. And nothing has changed for us to this day, as I've already said. Now, there's a little side note that I think is important to remember. <clears throat> is that when we look at Jesus, I think often, at least I do, and I, I did for many years until some helpful teachers and, and other, and just reading the scriptures kind of broke some of that open, but, but it's important to remember that Jesus was Jewish. I know that sounds really obvious, but he was. Sometimes we forget that. But why does that matter? Because you need to think about his life, the life that he lived. Now, we don't have you know, a, a ton of information in between you know, age 12 and 30, but we know a Jewish man, a Jewish kid growing up in a Jewish home would have participated in certain kinds of things. Like, how did Jesus get to the point where he could quote Deuteronomy and the Shema and, and Deuteronomy 8 and have those scriptures just right there? Well, he's God, right? And obviously, he knows the Bible backwards and forwards. Didn't he write it? Yes and no. He learned obedience. He was a, a Jewish kid. He was raised in a first century Jewish Home. He was circumcised in Luke chapter 2 on the eighth day, just like a Jewish boy would have. He was dedicated in the temple like a Jewish boy was. He participated in the Passover with his family in Jerusalem. And, and remember in, in uh, Luke chapter 2, they find Jesus there. They're kind of scrambling around. They're like, where did Jesus go? And he's in there learning from the rabbis, learning the scriptures, asking them questions in the temple. You remember that part of Jesus' life? And I've heard that text preached so horribly, awfully. Well, yeah, he was God. He already knew the answer. So, well, yeah, on one level. But he wasn't, he wasn't there going, hey, guys, I'm God. Anything you got to teach me? I just want to make sure you're correct. No. He, he wasn't spouting out parables at age 12. That would come later. He was being nurtured in the faith just like we are. He was developing. He was growing. He was asking questions. Yes, he was still fully God, fully man, but his time hadn't come. He was being developed by these disciplines. He was learning from these teachers. He was immersed in the Torah, the first five books of the Bible. He knew it backwards and forwards. He would have participated in the Jewish feasts and celebrations just like any Jewish person would have. The Passover feast, the, the de his, his father would have sat down at a table and he would have broke bread and taught them about God's salvation and God's mercy for his people at Passover. We see Jesus in his public ministry, right? Even after his, his public ministry, he's participating in the temple. He's participating in the festivals and the celebrations, just like any Jewish person 
would. Now, why do I say that? Because just like Jesus and just like us, he had to learn the scriptures. He had to immerse himself in the scriptures so that when Satan's attacks came and come, like us, we can draw on these promises. We can draw on these truths. We can say, nope, because that temptation is not going to lead to any joy, and that's going to pull me away from God. No, thank you. Yeah, I'm starving right now. I'll just, because I'm done. I, 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 I fasted this week, and um, it's been a while. And uh, if you've never fasted, like I, I used to have a, a more regular habit. I'm trying to get back into fasting a little bit more. But, man, I had a horrible day on Wednesday. I don't know if Andy noticed that. I was a little bit not chipper. <laughs> a little bit short. I was fine until, like, about 2 o'clock. And I was just like, my wife calls it hangry. Have you heard this? It's when you're hungry and you're angry. Hangry. Oh, man, I was so hangry. I like could not see straight. I'm just like trying to study. I'm trying to do all these things. I'm just like, oh my gosh, my stomach, right? But, but see, it's in those moments where I had to call upon the Lord. Again, I wish I could say it was just like, oh, then the joy came. And then I was just like, oh, you know, everything was great, right? I'm just like praying, like, help me, help me, Lord. I think I'm dying. I mean, Jesus was in the desert for 40 days. I'm in the, you know, fasting for eight minutes and I'm, you know, about to hurt someone. But you see, it's in those, those practices, in those habits where we say, God, are you enough for me? Can I rely on you? That's why God has given us these habits and given us these disciplines. They're not legalism. It's not to earn favor with God. It's not to earn blessing with God. But they're means of grace so that we can train our bodies how to trust and rely and obey and worship God, just like Jesus. So that's why I, I mentioned the, Jesus' background, his life. We'll talk about that more in future sermons. Like He was learning these things. He was learning how to pray. He was learning the scriptures. So when his time came, his moment came, he could respond with, I'm not going to sin. No, thank you. I'm going to rely on the word of God. That is a light unto my feet, feet as Andy uh, mentioned in, in Psalm 119. I love this, uh, this quote from uh, N.T. Wright. He's a kind of a first century historian, New Testament theologian. He says this about Jesus, because I think this is important to remember that Jesus wasn't Superman. Um, he actually says that. Jesus was not Superman. Many today, including some devout Christians, see him as a kind of Christian version of the movie character, able to do whatever he wanted to zap reality into any shape he liked. In the movie, Superman looks like an ordinary human being, but really he isn't. Underneath the disguise, he is all-powerful, a kind of computer-age super-magician. That's not the picture of Jesus we get in the New Testament. Luke has just reminded us of Jesus' membership in the family of Adam. If there had been any doubt about his being really human, Luke underlines his sharing of our flesh and blood in the vivid scene of temptation. If Jesus is the descendant of Adam, he must now face not only what Adam faced, but the powers that have been unleashed through human rebellion and sin. Long years of habitual rebellion against the Creator, God had brought about a situation in which the world, the flesh, and the devil had become used to twisting human beings into whatever shape they wanted. Jesus, when he was being tempted by Satan, didn't put on his Superman cape and say, now I'm going to be God and I'm going to not sin. He was fully God and fully man. He called upon, just like we do, and we'll get into what the Spirit-empowered life looks like. Jesus was baptized in the Spirit just like us. He walked in the power of the Spirit, just like we do. 
And we can learn the scriptures just like Jesus did. We can call upon these truths and these promises when temptation abounds every single day of our life, by the way. Now, when Jesus is being tempted by Satan, I already mentioned this, but he, he, he quotes the Shema, Deuteronomy 6. Again, a very um, important confession, a, a, a prayer, uh, what Jews would, would, would very much know by heart, would, would recite every day, even just committing themselves to God. But the Shema is a very interesting word, and I think this is where we kind of get like Hebrew and Greek mind things kind of goofy here. The Shema actually means to hear or to listen. But when you and I think about hear and listen, what do you think of? You just hear, you think of typically, at least I do, just words, sounds going into my ear and I hear them, right? That's usually how that works, just so you know. I'm not all that intelligent, but that's how it works. Like we hear, we listen, all right? We get some information, we go, okay, we hear, we listen, okay, it goes in. But, but what the, the Shema is saying, what the Hebrew scriptures, actually the way it talks about it is hear and listening actually has the idea of action or doing or obedience. Now, why is that significant? Because I want to ask the question, and we'll get into some practical things here in just a second. But what is the word of God for, ultimately? Now, yes, to know Christ, it, it points to Christ. It's, it's all about God, yes, and amen. But it's to obey what God has told us to do, ultimately. That's what the Word of God is for. Like, it's not just to have a quiet time. It's not to have knowledge. And it's not to, so we can debate people on Facebook, Lord, help us. <laughs> to use it as a weapon, Lord, help us. There's going to be a special place in hell for the comments section of YouTube and Facebook, just so you know. That's not what the word of God is for. It's for obedience. It's for living. It's for wisdom and how to live with God, how to live with our neighbor, how to live with our creation. It's always been about that. And that's a little bit why in a few weeks we're going to talk about the virtuous life where we actually need the kind of character that we can handle the word of God, not like a bludgeoning instrument to, to destroy people. That we need the word of God, but we also need the character to go along with it so we don't abuse and, and destroy people and, and yell at them. As if we're the, you know, theology police. But to actually love and do what God said, to love our neighbors as our, ourselves. But see, the Shema is about listening and hearing. And we get a couple of little hints from that in Psalm uh, chapter 81. You don't have to turn all these, i got a couple of scriptures here. But I want you to know that I'm not saying crazy things. But, but in Psalm chapter, or Psalm 81... Verse 8, hear, O people, while I admonish you, O Israel, if you would but listen to me. There shall be no strange God among you. You shall not bow down to a foreign God. Shema, listen, hear. It actually means do, obey, act. When David calls on God, hear my prayers, O Lord. What's he saying? Is God deaf? No. He's saying, God, act. That's what hear my prayers mean, right? Isn't that when you cry out to God and life's falling apart and you're just saying, God, can you hear me? He's not saying, hey, maybe I've sinned too much and God doesn't hear me. He's saying, no, God, act on my behalf. You've got to do something. And that's what this Shema is. That's why Jesus had that. It's, it's, not, it's not just, oh, good, Jesus, you have the scriptures memorized. It's now obey them when temptation comes and say, no, thank you. I'm going to do what God commands me because I know what God commands me. There's life to be had. There's joy to be had. That's why the psalmist always gush over God's commands, right, and laws. 
right? I mean, isn't that, it's kind of weird. It's like David, he's just like, you know, your, your law, it's like, like honey to my mouth and, and to my lips. Like, why? Because he knows his God, who's a good God and a loving God. And he knows that these commands are for his joy and how to live life with God in the world. He's after that. They're not just burdensome commands so that God can be the, the absolute joy kill. He's trying to enhance our joy. So Psalm 81, here, listen, obey. We're going to memorize John 15, right? What's the the marker of love? uh, Jesus says in John 15, verse 8, By this my Father is glorified, that you bear much fruit, and have so proved to be my disciples. As the Father has loved me, so I have loved you. Abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. He connects obedience and love. Abide in my word, right? Do what it says. And then, then what? Then it's like loving me, right? Then it makes total sense. But see, you, so many of you have grown up with this legalistic kind of weird Christianity, cultural Christianity, that, that, that's these weird rules and laws. And it has to do with whether we watch Disney or not or where, who we hang around or what kind of music it has nothing to do with this. What Jesus is saying, he's saying, if you really love me, you'll see my commands as grace to you and you'll want to follow them. Right? Like if we love God with all of our hearts, minds, and souls, we're not just going, oh, but I'm not doing anything you say. Like, how is that loving on any level, <laughs> right? I love my wife. I listen to what she says to me, right? Because I love her. I, I, I don't go, Psh, whatever, I'm the man, sorry. It's not how this thing works. You read Ephesians 5? Never said that, by the way. No, I love her. I'm going to listen to what you say. I'm going to, I'm going to take your input. I'm going to take, you know, hey, can you stop being so crazy all the time? I'm like, sorry, babe, this is what you signed up for. Till death do his part, honey. I'm an emotional train wreck, just so you know. I have said that before. <laughs> I am needy. If we love God, of course we're going to do what he says because we know of the lawgiver and everything he does is, Ryan, Here's why I've given you my commands, because I love you. And I know that when you try to live apart from them, things are going to go horribly wrong. Between me, between your wife, between your kids, between your neighbors, between your church family. If you just said, nah, I'm not going to do it, it's going to go horribly, horribly wrong. Do you ever wonder why Jesus says these little phrases? Like in Mark uh, chapter 4. You might be familiar with this text, the the four soils of the uh, parable of the sower. In Mark chapter 4, verse 9, he says, And he said, He who has ears to hear, let him hear. That's not just, oh, good, you heard it. Right? How many of you have children? They hear a lot of things we say. Why do I tell them to do certain things? So they can hear them and go, yes, Dad, I would like to check off the box that I heard what you said. It's so they'll what? Obey. Right? They care less if they heard me. They know I, like, I, I, I know you heard me. I have said that. Now do what I say. 
Now that sounds very like, oh, Jesus, you must be a horrible. No, no. Here, here's Jesus. He's saying, he's, he's saying, hey, the, the parable of the sword, the, the, the seed's going to come, and, and some soul's going to be rocky hard, and some of it's going to get plucked away. The, the cares of the world are going to come. But he says, hey, these, those who have ears here, he's saying, do, act, obey. One more. We could go to James 1. Don't be hearers of the word, be doers, right? Great text. But I'll, I'll give you, well, I'll give you two more. You know the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew chapter 7? <coughs> Preached on this a few months, few, well, maybe last year. Matthew uh, 7, it was longer than that, I don't remember. Um, Matthew 7, at the end of Jesus' famous sermon on, on the Sermon on the Mount, what does he say in Matthew 7, 24? Everyone then who hears these words of mine and does them will be like a wise man who built a house on the rock. And the rain fell, the floods came, and the winds blew and beat on the house, but it did not fall because it had been founded on the rock. And everyone who hears these words of mine and does not do them will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. And the rain fell, and the floods came, and the winds blew and beat against the house, and it fell great was the He's saying there's wise people and there's foolish people. You can listen to my words, and I don't want you just to hear it. I want you to actually do it. You, you want your life to be so rooted and so grounded and so joyful and so, 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 so amazing that, that when this t- temptation comes to be this or to be that, right? We say, no, thank you. My life is rooted on a different rock. Because I know if I build it on a different rock other than Christ, what's going to happen is when when temptation comes and suffering comes and all this pain of life comes, I'm going to crumble under the weight of it. Don't just be hearers of the word, be doers. Apply these things to your life. Put them into action. It's it's one thing to say you love your neighbor, but to actually do it. Now, I know we're, we're hearing, you know, this... Maybe as, as legalism or some kind of like, well, is God not going to love me and if I don't do this perfectly? Of course not. That's why we need the gospel. That's why we need grace. That's why we need the Holy Spirit. But I also find it interesting that our mission as a church, the Great Commission, right, in Matthew 28, says what? Teaching them to obey everything I have done. So what is the word of God for? That we would... Obey it. And in obeying it, we love God, and we love God, and then we obey it. The best way to, to obey is to, to, to have our lives so enamored with God that we worship God with all of our heart, mind, soul, and strength. That's how the commandments even work. I mean, the first four of the Ten Commandments are about loving God, and everything flows into that, loving our neighbor. We've got to get the first one right. We're going to have no power to love our neighbors if we don't love God first, right? If we don't go to the ultimate source of love, it's going to be a nightmare trying to love our neighbors. Until we find all of our need and all the grace and all the mercy and all the joy in God, it's going to be very, very difficult to show grace and mercy and joy to those around us. But they go in tandem. God doesn't say, just listen to what I say, but don't do anything. He says, be hearers of the word, but also be doers. Jesus knew that. And in his moment of temptation, in his moment of weakness, he didn't just quote scripture to quote scripture. He obeyed. And he didn't worship Satan. <laughs> he didn't throw himself off the temple. He didn't eat the bread, even though he could have made it, the stones and the bread and ate it. He, he said, no, I'm going to rely and trust on God because I'm going to worship God with all my heart, mind, soul, and strength. So how do we become word-centered disciples? There's a couple of little things here as we close out. Take a look at supper. 
one. And these aren't going to be as, you know, I could just say, well, just read your Bible every day. You know, a verse a day keeps Satan away. I'm not going to do that. It's helpful. But I'm, going to, I'm going to frame it a little different way. One, soak yourself in the Gospels. Hear me? Soak yourself in the Gospels. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, they're all about Jesus. Here's why. Here's why. A couple reasons. A lot of us think we understand the scriptures until we actually read the scriptures and realize they say something very different. A lot of us think we know who Jesus is and what he did and what he said until we actually read what he did and what he said. <laughs> I want you to immerse yourself in the Gospels. Why? Here's, why. Here's another reason. I want you to get a feel for Jesus and what he's doing and how he's living and, and the situations that he finds himself in. Why? Because a lot of our series has to do with this. As we look at the humanity of Jesus, this is the kind of person that Jesus wants to, to make us into. <clears throat> but also is that in John 14, it says, if we see Jesus, we see the Father. If we see the Father, we see Jesus. If you want to know what, who God is and what he's like, we look to Jesus. I want you to have a true, honest, as much as we can, the sight of heaven, relationship with God that is actually based on the scriptures, not on fancy, you know, your own fancies or fantasies or what some dumb blogger said, or, hey, I have a really smart friend. He, you know, he knows the ancient Near East literature, and he says all this is garbage. You know, I saw a history, doc, his, history doc, documentary, and I, I, I mean, they say some things like, Jesus had a girlfriend. I want you to go to the source. And I'm willing to bet if you take this Lent season and you soak and immerse yourself in John 15 in the Gospels, you will come to a different picture of who God is and how he actually works and what he's like than the one that's probably in most of our minds. By focusing, meditating on, thinking on Jesus. Because if we've seen Jesus, we've seen the Father. They're the same God in the Old and the New Testament. So soak in the Gospels. Second, Memorize, as Andy uh, said earlier, John 15, if you'd like. You don't have to. There's other good ones, too. There's a big Bible, and then there's a lot of verses. Mm -hmm. Meditate and memorize and pray over the Psalms. Over the Psalms. John Calvin said the Psalms are the anatomy of the soul. Here's why I wanted to do that. Anyone show of hands, life is hard? I should have went over bigger. <laughs> Check your pulse. Life is hard. You're going to have fears. You're going to have doubts. You're going to lose a job. Sickness is going to come. We have people walking through tremendous heartache and pain, cancer. Not sure if people are going to live. All kinds of crazy stuff that we're just pleading with God to heal and restore. The Psalms, any pain you've ever had, any struggle you've ever had, any doubt you've ever had, any fear you've ever had are found, I guarantee you, in the Psalms in some way, shape, or form. You've been abandoned, you've been abused, you've abused and abandoned others, you, you, you've committed horrious things, done horrible things, you feel like the enemy's always winning, you've lost everything, it's all in the Psalms. I need you to have a steady, hearty diet of the Psalms. Pray them, think over them, reflect on them. Now here, here's, especially, I'm just going to say ladies, now this isn't meant to be sexist or anything, but I know a lot of our ladies, they, they stay at home with children or they don't work jobs outside the, out the home and they're just like, man, how am I supposed to, you know, have a quote unquote quiet time or the Psalms are a great place to do that. One of the things my wife does is she just writes like one verse of the Psalms and plasters it on just on some edgy, cool chalkboard that she saw on HGTV or something. <laughs> um, on a mirror, 
I know my mother-in-law does it too. She has cool little quotes and just different things that, that she, you, you walk around the house, you see those things. You maybe have it written down in your pocket throughout your day. You can pull on it. You can reflect on it. You don't have to sit down and, and, you know, with your lamp and your candle and all that. You can have it for your whole day. And I think for most of us, that's more like ordinary, normal living. Like we have things we got to do, right? But you can have the scriptures. You can have that psalm. You can pray it all day long. And call on it all day long. Right? It's very simple. Oh, how many times have I had to call on scripture? Um, you know, I, I don't know if I ever said to one of my kids, get behind me, Satan, but it just seemed applicable at the time. I don't know if that's what Jesus meant, but but a healthy diet of the Psalms is important. I think it gives you a balanced faith that God can handle your doubts and your fears, and your anger. Holy cow, the Psalms are just like mad all the time. <laughs> like, where are you, God, right? I love that. It gives us permission. Where are you? Why aren't you answering this prayer right now? It's okay. All right. We're good. And then lastly, read and discuss the scriptures with others. Big, big part of our life here at the, at the body. Come, come on Sunday mornings. Hear the word preached, taught. Don't, don't minimize that. Maybe for Lent, it's coming every week. I know some of us, you know, we got kind of scattered attendance. I know some of that's because of family and other things, but, but committing ourselves to that, being in a, in a city group where we discuss and, and, and apply the word of God to our life. DNA groups where two or three men or women get together and, and discuss and apply the, the word of God, memorize scripture. Um, you know, friends, family, around the dinner table with your family, your friends, right? Women's ministry, men's ministry have studies going all the time. Just another opportunity to be together with God's people and to learn from each other and apply the word of God together. This isn't just an individual, isolated sport. I think it actually works best when we do it together. When we do it together. So soak in the Gospels, memorize, meditate over the Psalms, pray the Psalms, and read and discuss the Scriptures with others. You know, in some way, shape, or form, I think Jesus practiced all these things. Now, the Gospels are about him. That would come later. But he knew the Psalms backwards and forwards. He quotes the Psalms all the time. He would have sang them. He would have recited them. He knows the Old Testament backwards and forwards. He knows the Torah backwards and forwards. He studied the scripture with other people all the time. Just like we do. So what's the goal for the Word Center Disciple? We could have more information, more ammo on Facebook. That's what we need, right, in the world? <coughs> That's a hot mess, isn't it? So we go on Twitter and blast all the heretics? No. So that we can be smarter than our, our seminary friends? So that we can know the Greek and the Hebrew backwards and forwards? So that we can have the Old Testament memorized? Maybe. No. My goal as your pastor, my goal for my life as a disciple of Jesus, first and foremost, is that you would love God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. And you would do what he says. Because by doing what he says, it shows that we love him. But by doing what he says, it also shows us where life is to be found and had. It's for our good and our joy and for the glory of God as we follow and do what he says. Not just to be hearers of the word, but doers. Dallas Willard said this. I'll finish with this quote. The greatest issue facing the world today with all its heartbreaking needs is whether those who by profession or culture are identified as Christians will become disciples. 
students, apprentices, practitioners of Jesus Christ, steadily learning from him how to live the life of the kingdom of the heavens into every corner of human existence. That's my prayer for you. That's my prayer for me, is that we would become students, disciples, um, learners, same idea of Jesus, one of our um, identities as a church, that we can live our lives in every corner of existence, being fully human and fully alive in, in wherever God calls us in our work and in our family, our neighborhoods, all of existence, to be his apprentices, to love him with all of our hearts and to do as he says and to love our neighbors as ourselves. Every week we have the, the privilege of taking the Lord's Supper. And I think this morning it's, it's even uh, another, I should say, another great reminder that that Jesus, in, when he's being tempted, was faithful all the way down. That he didn't fail, he didn't stumble at one point. But we do, right? That's why we need a Savior. That's why we needed Jesus to come and to pour out his blood, represented by the cup, and to break his body, represented by the bread, because all of us fall short of the glory of God. All of us don't apply and live the scriptures as we should. Amen? So we need grace. We need forgiveness. And so if you're a Christian and you're trusting in what Christ has done for you on your behalf, and that he laid his life down, that he died for you, that he rose for you, and you're trusting in him and what he's done, and you're saying, yes, I, I've come to follow Jesus and be his disciples. Come and, and celebrate the Lord's Supper with us. We'll have two servers in the front. We break off a piece of the bread. We dip it in the cup. If you have any kind of allergies or um, gluten issues, we have some, some bread. We think it's bread in the middle there. It's, it's nut-free, allergy-free, gluten-free. It's just air. Um, and if you need that, please take that. We don't want you guys to get sick. Um, and, and we also just ask if, if you're not a believer in Christ, that you'd stay seated. It's kind of a family deal, but we do have some prayers in our city life that we'd love for you to think on, reflect on, um, that Jesus is, says he's the, the, the truth, the way, the truth, and the life. And we believe that with all of our hearts, minds, and souls. We'd love to talk with you about that if you have questions about that as well. And then lastly, as we uh, take the supper, is if you're like me, um, I didn't love God with all my heart, mind, and soul and strength this week. Um, and I didn't love my neighbor as myself perfectly this week. And so it's an opportunity before we take, Paul says, to examine our hearts before God. And if there's relationships that need mending, I, I'd encourage you to do that. Or at least, you know, ask for forgiveness. Or maybe they're in this room. You need to just say, hey, I'm sorry for whatever. Um, maybe you need to do that after the service or whatever. But it's, just, it's good to kind of come clean and honest before God before we take the supper. And he's gracious to forgive. He always does and always will. So with that, let's pray. Father, we thank you for Jesus. We thank you that what we can learn from his life and his death and his resurrection, we thank you that he was a, a word-centered man. And he's called us to be word-centered people. That immerse and saturate ourselves in the truths and the promises of God so that we can be obedient to you and we can love you with all of our hearts, minds, and souls, and strength. So God, as we enter into this Lenten season, we just ask for your help. We ask for your grace. We pray you would show us those places where we're not depending on you, where sin looks more enticing, where, where, where worshiping other things but you looks more enticing, where we're struggling, where there's fear, where there's doubt, where there's just pain, where, there's, where we're just kind of in a mess. God, I just pray you'd meet us in those places and show us our lives before you, that you are gracious and you are good and you are holy and you are merciful and you forgive and show us what we can learn from Jesus in his life to live a life worthy of you, God. So we offer these things to you, you alone. In Jesus' name, amen. Come and celebrate the Lord's Supper with us.